really feels like it really feels like the uh, that song will be outlawed in a couple years. To um, not because of the the lyrics or the the motions, but because of the lyrics. And I'm thankful that we uh, saturate our children with the truth of God's word, so they're they're singing these songs, uh, learning scripture, even if they don't realize they're learning it. Very thankful for that. Well, we are back in our series, uh, a world of knockoffs, looking at part two of my sermon from last week, uh, entitled "False Conversions." Um, if you've ever heard the story of, or have you ever heard the story of the Piltdown Man? The Piltdown Man. Um, it's an actually a very important uh, historical moment in the church. In 1912, uh, there were some laborers that were digging up uh, an area in uh, an area in, called Piltdown near Sussex, England, and uh, they discovered some bone fragments there. And so they they contacted a local scientist named Charles Dawson, not Charles Darwin, although some of the same time period. And so Charles Dawson took these bone fragments and he began to um, promote the idea that this scientific discovery of the Piltdown Man, as, as he was called, was the evidence that was needed for uh, evolutionary thought... Um, these bone fragments, he said, they bridge the gap between the transition of a man and an ape. And um, so he began to uh, promote this evidence as proof of scientific evolutionary theory. Um, and he continued to pass this information along. The history tells us that he passed it on to um, the Natural History Museum there, who then reported it to the the Geological Society. And without any tests or examinations performed, the specimens were authenticated and celebrated. And it actually took 50 years for them to realize that these findings were a complete hoax. Uh, One doctor um, from Answers in Genesis, Elizabeth Mitchell, writes that scientists found the impressive cranium belonged to a modern human and the jawbone that they found belonged to an orangutan or a chimpanzee. All were stained to look old and to match. The teeth had been filed down. What was one had at what at one time was renowned as a scientific discovery uh, that was celebrated became um, uh, scientific foolishness, and I felt like this story was very pertinent to our our day today as we look at false conversions, because one thing really stood out to me is that there was not truthful and proper examination of the evidence. It was biased examination. It was built upon the foundings of and the the teachings of Charles Darwin. Matter of fact, there is a picture that you can find on the internet of Charles Dawson sitting around a table of these men that are looking at these fragments together and the, and the painter painted a picture of Charles Darwin on the wall behind him. Isn't that interesting? Um, because it was as if Charles Darwin was passing on his theory to these so-called scientists who literally, and, and, uh, and it's never been verified exactly who was responsible for the hoax, but the, the hoax itself had been identified and clearly seen as a forgery in the scientific community. And so much so that it became an embarrassment and a, and a moment of shame for scientists in the, in the English community um, in that time. And I think it's pertinent to us because um, as the church, we oftentimes uh, celebrate the, the successes of uh, church life and particularly salvation. And we get excited about it. We get excited about seeing uh, people come to know Jesus. And we, see, we get excited about uh, people going into the baptismal waters and professing that Jesus Christ is their Lord. And sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we allow that excitement to motivate and to generate a poor, 
truthful examination of a person's real faith in Christ. And what's happened throughout the years, and particularly with me growing up in the church, is I grew up in a world that literally promoted that anybody can get saved at any time. Well, hold on for a second. Of course anybody can get saved anytime. But the problem with that was, is that there was never a truthful examination. It was get as many people in the waters as possible to get baptized. Why? Because it was all about church membership and, and, um, and the way in which we generated uh, this false idea of the Spirit really at work. And so whether it was a youth conference or a children's event, they would do everything they could to emotionally coerce kids to come forward so that they could show a great number of people that were uh, supposedly spiritually changed. Well, if you know anything about history, you know that Constantine did the very same thing by by putting uh, Christian symbols all over his military gear and baptizing all of his soldiers. Why? Because he knew that if he did that, or he thought he, if he did that, he would generate some spiritual victory in the church or for his battle. Um, and, in, and in doing so, really what he did is he masked a bunch of false conversions. Those soldiers probably went to war thinking that they had some salvific uh, experience. And truth be told, they died lost and, and in hell. And so we have to be real honest and be with, we have to be real serious about the sense that, that there are false conversions uh, going on throughout history in the church. And we need to be faithful to the gospel and understanding the gospel to promote true authentication of an identification of believers in Jesus Christ. In our story last week, we looked at Simon the Magician, in my opinion, as a, uh, as a, um, a, a clear case of false conversions um, in the early church days. And I think it's a helpful passage for us moving forward as a church to understand why it is that elders at Redemption Community Church takes us such rigorous efforts to make sure that your children and even adults truly understand the gospel. That we don't have a baptistry up here that we're throwing people in every Sunday that raise their hand and come forward. That we want to make sure that whether you're 15 or 50, that you understand truly who Jesus is, what He accomplished, and why you need Him. So that we can do our best to eliminate false conversions. Now, are we perfect at that? No, absolutely not. And we stand here as elders, I stand here representing the elders, and saying that we do our best to do what the Lord has called us to do. So we looked at two of the four observations about false conversions uh, last week. And just as a review, um, if you missed last week or you just need to be refreshed, um, we looked at the first two points, a work of the enemy and a wrong faith. Uh, In Acts chapter 8, we look first of all at the way in which the scriptures show us that Satan was at work throughout the early church to bring about a spiritual battle on the, on the, the front of great spiritual transformation in the early church. Where there was the work of the Spirit in the early church, you would always find Satan trying to undo that or counteract that effort. We saw that it, um, early on it, after Pentecost as the Spirit falls upon the disciples. And what do you see? You begin to see the persecution rise up in the church. Whether it was Peter and John imprisoned. Whether it was uh, Saul who became Paul sent out to persecute the church and kill Stephen. It was constantly a work of the enemy trying to bring about... Um, the un- undoing of the gospel work. And the, the beauty of it is, is there's not an undoing. And so we see evidence in Scripture and in history of, of Satan always attacking, always doing what he can to undo kingdom work. But we always see the work of the kingdom and the work of the gospel successful and victorious, showing us that our God is a sovereign God over all evil. But we must understand the reality of it. The reality that Satan wants to blind the minds of unbelievers. So anybody that you may know, anybody here today that doesn't know Christ, you need to be aware and understand that Satan wants you blinded. He does not want you to understand the gospel. 
He does not want you to see the reality of sin. He wants you to uh, swim in the, the, the joys and the, the, the fun uh, and, the, uh, and the, the passions of your, your, your flesh and, and what your flesh desires. He does not want to, you to see the reality of judgment that looms ahead. He doesn't want you to understand that hell is on the horizon, but instead he wants you to be blinded to that truth. And that's why Adam, I had him read uh, today Matthew chapter 7. Now that passage is particularly about false prophets, but the general idea is still, still true. Is that only good trees bear good fruit, bad trees or dead trees bear bad fruit, or rotten fruit, or corrupted fruit. And many of these false prophets or even uh, people in the church today who call themselves Christians will one day be surprised because they were blinded throughout their life and they never truly knew Christ. They were never truly faithful to Him. They never truly had faith in Him. And so we talked last week about the work of the enemy. And the way in which the work of the enemy works is he corrupts and dilutes and distorts the gospel message so that people in the church have a wrong faith. They have a faith that's uh, intellectually motivated where they know a lot of important truths and facts about Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. Let me tell you, as a pastor, this is the most dangerous moment for my children because they are constantly hearing about these things and they can have so many uh, biblical trivia facts in their minds and yet they may never know Christ. And so we have to com- communicate to them how important it is to have a proper faith. You can have an intellectual faith and not be a Christian. You can know a lot about Jesus and never fully trust in Him. Back in the day, um, early in, in my uh, relationship with Stuart and Dottie, we did Evangelism Explosion. And Evangelism Explosion, in their training, they give the, the illustration of, of knowing about a, a historical figure like George Washington. And, um, and, and, and basically in the, the presentation of Evangelism Explosion, you say something to the degree of, well, you know, you know the historical facts about George Washington, but how does that change you? How does that change you as a person by knowing George Washington's presidency and historical data? It does absolutely nothing for you. In the same way, knowing historical facts about Jesus as a person, as a a good teacher, as a prophet, or even as the Son of God, does great wonders for your knowledge and understanding and even religious communication with other people, but it doesn't save you. Truly trusting in Christ, it saves you and changes you. It transforms you. We also said last week that a wrong faith is emotional faith. It's just being caught up in this idea that, that um, you're in an emotional experience and, and, and you're coerced to walk down the aisle, as I said earlier. And one of the things I didn't say last week that, that we have often seen in our lives is, a, is emotional salvation whereby which, or you can even call it a circumstantial salvation, whereby which um, you are saved from a certain situation that clearly God saved you from, therefore you think you're going to heaven. You might hear somebody say, oh, well, in 1995, I had cancer and the Lord saved me from that cancer and he, he rose me up and, and he wiped that cancer away. And so I know that he loves me and, and, and that one day I'm going to heaven. No, that's circumstantial faith. That circumstance that the Lord did in your life is not you trusting in Christ for your salvation. Spiritually, you're trusting in your salvation circumstantially. That He would save you from cancer. Or that He would save you from your your job loss. Not that you have come to grips with the depth of your sin and the holiness of God and the fact that you understand that you have offended a holy God and judgment is on the horizon. That's when you truly come to know Christ. Therefore, we defined a true faith as one that is a surrender. A surrender that includes faith Trusting fully and completely in Jesus Christ alone to save you. Your faith. Students, listen to me. Not your parents' faith. 
Not your parents' faith. Not the faith that your mom and dad believe in. Not the Jesus that your mom and dad teach you about. He has to become Jesus, your Lord and your Savior. Knowing that you have seen the sin in your life, the fallenness of your heart, the deadness that you need transformation yourself, and therefore you are fully and completely trusting in Jesus Christ in faith alone. Not according to works that you might perform yourself. And of course, with that faith comes repentance. So you can't just have faith. Faith is a two-headed or two-sided coin because repentance is turning away from the sins of your life, the things that dishonor Christ, that dishonor His name and His holiness and His goodness. So as you turn away from your sin, you're then turning to Christ in faith. That is the true faith. We didn't see that in the life of Simon. Simon was a magician. He was, as we read, caught up in the mystical arts. He was someone that was not an illusionist. He was performing the works of of the demons, as we would say. Satan himself being the originator of, of false religions and false practices like magic. Occult worship. Taking our eyes away from the glory of Christ and putting them on nature and words and things that have no value to them whatsoever. Simon was a magician that was, a, that was hungry for power. And in his quest for power and fame and prestige, we read that in Acts chapter 8, he had a great following in Samaria. But he didn't have a true faith. Philip comes into town, as we read, and he's preaching the good news. Look in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. It says that when Philip came into town, they paid attention to him. Or excuse me, verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. In verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. We pointed out, I pointed out to you how the the word amazed was continually used. It's a sensational word. It's a word of the senses, amazement. Whether you go to the carnival and you see the bearded lady and you're like, wow, that woman has a lot of hair on her face. That's amazement. You're, You're astonished by the things that you may visually see with your eyes. And oftentimes the senses that we see with our eyes leads to the lust of our heart, as Adam was telling us during our gospel renewal. And what we see with Simon is not a brokenness over his lust, but a a growing or greater desire for lust. He was lustful, and Philip comes in town and preaches the gospel, and he supposedly believes and is baptized, but his quest and his hunger for lust does not subside. He's not repentant of that lust. It only grows stronger. And thirteen, verse 13 solidifies that idea for us. Now, in verse 14, down through the end of this story, let me read this because that's kind of our focus today. It says, When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, the apostles who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to them, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in a gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord 
that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So as we look at these four observations, the first two, a work of the enemy and a wrong faith, our third um, observation is the missing seal. The missing seal. The historical understanding of this passage um, is that in the early church, the Holy Spirit had fallen upon uh, the Jews that had believed in Christ. They, that happened at Pentecost. And those at Pentecost were, um, uh, were aware of the, the visible presence of the Holy Spirit coming and, and falling upon those in the city. But what happened throughout the, the history of the church that's so important to us really follows the pattern of Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay? Well, what we see in Acts chapter 8 is actually a pivotal change in the work of the Spirit. Because the gospel has now left Jerusalem, it's now gone to the neighboring area of Samaria. And that's really important for us because the Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. They were the half-breeds as the Jews considered them. And they were rejected by the Jews. The Samaritans had their own temple and on a separate mountain that had mimicked the temple in Jerusalem. So they were very much rivals The Jews would have thought that the Samaritans were imitating them, but yet they had mixed their religion and syncretized their religion with other neighboring practices. And so the Jews disdained the Samaritans. And so when we read in Acts 1-8, go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, that's an offensive thought to the Jewish people who were becoming Christians. All of a sudden, these barriers had to break down. And so in Acts chapter 8, we see not only the gospel going to Samaria, but the Holy Spirit falling upon the Samaritans. And then later, in Acts chapter 10, what do we see? The Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles. That's the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's very important for our understanding of of this passage and the the process of the early church because the Holy Spirit was was working in great and, and unique ways during that early church period time. That's why we see that Simon and those Samaritans did not receive the Holy Spirit when they believed. And that's very important for us to understand today. Look at verse uh, 14, or uh, excuse me, um, in verse 13. When it says, Even Simon himself believed, and after that being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. Now the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John. Peter and John are the delegation of the, of, of the apostles. And they come and they pray that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Peter and John come in verse 17. They lay their hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a distinction that's made in verse 17 and verse 18. It says, They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. There's a distinction there that implies that Simon did not receive the Holy Spirit. And that distinction is not only... uh, evident there in the grammar, but go back to verse verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Grammatically, verses 12 and 13 are two distinct ideas. The Samaritans truly believed, Luke is telling us, and yet Simon believed but didn't really believe. And then in verses, uh, the distinction is made again with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. They laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, that's the Samaritans, and now even Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands. He offered them money. 
Now, some may argue, well, Simon just wants the power to heal or give the Holy Spirit. I would say that the grammar proves otherwise. That Simon never received the power of the Holy Spirit because he truly did not believe. Why? Because the, the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. If Simon had received the Holy Spirit, then we would not be able to believe Ephesians 1, which tells us that the seal of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. In him, Paul tells the Ephesians, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the grammar shows us that this seal of the Holy Spirit is the, uh, the thing in which guarantees us an understanding that we are truly saved. And the word seal there is in referencing uh, historically to seals that were stamped upon uh, uh, letters of kings that were sent out as uh, with delegates passed around the kingdom to the subjects. And that seal had a couple of important purposes. For one, that wax seal uh, placed on the envelope authenticated that that letter came from the king. And so if you saw that steel or seal, which was a, a oftentimes a signet ring that they would uh, drip the wax on the letter and the, or the scroll and they would uh, uh, put their ring, their signet ring, it would make that impression authenticating in that hot wax that this was an authenticated message from the king. Well, the Holy Spirit falling upon believers is authentication that our salvation is true and genuine and real. So the word uh, uh, seal is about authentication. It also implies security. Security. Not only was that wax stamp uh, verification of the king's words, but the, the wax itself not being broken was proven on the lip of the scroll or the lip of the, of the letter showing that, that with that seal not being broken, that none of the contents within that letter had been read or looked at. Therefore, it was secure in its delivery. And what an um, amazing truth and, and reminder to us that to be sealed with the Holy Spirit is to be reminded that we are secure in Christ. Again, reading from Ephesians 1, you are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. There is no doubt, there is no need to wonder or fear when you understand that you have received the Holy Spirit upon your belief in Christ. You are forever guaranteed to receive the inheritance of that salvation. We read, by God's providence, our statement of faith, which we don't uh, mix and mingle with the sermon. And yet today, the preservation or the perseverance of the saints knowing that no matter what God um, has done in the past will have its effect on us to save us and to keep us until the end. Well, how does that happen? By the seal and the promise of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. That we, will, we may fall and we may fall, fall, uh, uh, stumble in sin, but we will never fail the Lord. We will never turn away from Him fully, denying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ losing our salvation. We can't because we've been sealed by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. It is our security. And finally, the seal represents for us the blessings. Again, in Ephesians chapter 1, that this inheritance is ours. It's uh, promised to us. As, the, as 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that we've been called to be born again to an incorruptible, undefiled, unfading inheritance that's what? Kept in heaven for you by the power of God. That regardless of, of, of what uh, failings and weaknesses that you may have in your life, the power of Christ to save you from death to life, the power of Christ to resurrect you from the dead will keep you from falling completely and reserves for you all the blessings 
of the inheritance. Now understand that. The seal of the Holy Spirit reminds us that we have gone from enemies of God to inheritors, to heirs of His grace and His blessing as His people. That's what the Holy Spirit does in sealing us. And sadly, we don't see evidence in Simon's story that he received the seal of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, I want us to understand something very important about this passage historically. Because we can oftentimes, and we have seen historically, people misinterpret this passage. And so that there are current day practices in churches whereby people are still trying to lay their hands on people and give the power of the Holy Spirit. And they've made the laying of hands and the, uh, the, the, the giving uh, of the second blessing of the Holy Spirit as some uh, upper level, I would call a level up elite um, practice of Christian um, sanctification is how I would say it. They would say, oh, well, you know, you become a Christian, but as you're faithful to Him, as your faith is strong and mighty, then you will pray that that God will give you the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and the leaders of the church will come and lay their hands on you and you will receive this level up sanctifying process whereby the Spirit will fall upon you and empower you to do these great things for the, for the Lord. And what happens is, is it, number one, it's not taught in the Bible. They misinterpret these passages in Acts in the early church as the prescription of what the church should be like instead of the description of what the early church was like. As I said, this was a, a unique time in the Holy Spirit's working in the early church. And the very purpose of the Holy Spirit falling upon the Samaritans and later the Gentiles separately from their salvation had important purposes. So you may ask yourself, Pastor, why did the Holy Spirit delay coming upon the Samaritans? Here's the answer. Because the Jewish leadership that had become Christians, Peter and John, they had to see the Holy Spirit fall upon these Samaritans. They had to see the Holy Spirit fall upon the Gentiles. They had to process it. So much so that when Peter came to grips with it, the Lord literally had to give Peter a vision of the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit so that he would be convinced and he would then go to the church in Jerusalem and remind them that the gospel was for all peoples. It wasn't just for the Jews. And so in delaying giving the Holy Spirit, the Lord allows the representatives of the church and the apostles to come to Samaria, lay hands upon the Samaritans, therefore the Holy Spirit falling upon them. And church, let me tell you now that that is not how it happens today. Okay? Again, Ephesians chapter 1, it's still on the screen. Look at what happens. You hear the word of truth as Paul tells the Ephesians. The gospel of your salvation, believing in him and were sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. There's no delay. There's no um, situation where uh, a time or place or space separates your belief in Christ from receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are truly a, a, a person who is trusting fully in Christ, then you have received the Holy Spirit. And that is your seal and your guarantee of the inheritance that awaits you to the praise of His glorious grace. So, let me encourage you then to consider your own life. Have you heard the word of truth? Have you listened to the gospel? And upon hearing the gospel... Understanding your need for salvation, have you believed? That's what Paul says. That you believed, Ephesian church. Because if you believe, then you've been sealed. And oftentimes, young Christians struggle with this idea. Well, I don't see the Holy Spirit. I, I don't see the, the being sealed. So how can I know that I truly am a Christian? 
Well, let me ask you to hold your place there and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, here's the answer to that. If you doubt your salvation, if you struggle to know if Christ has truly saved you, Galatians chapter 5, look in verse 16. Paul tells the Galatian church, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the Spirit are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, he says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those, who be- are, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, he says, let us also walk by the Spirit. So the wording that Paul is using here is the, is the key to us understanding our seal of the Spirit, our guarantee of the inheritance, our, our confidence that Christ has saved us. Here's the answer. The answer is not, do you remember a time where a, a preacher wrote in the front of your Bible that you were saved on this day and you have this baptismal certificate in this beautifully printed uh, Bible that you kept and because you have that on your wall or, or written in your Bible that, that you have confidence and, and that that day happened? That's not the answer, church. The answer is not because your mom and dad promised you that you walked forward and you knew the gospel and you were baptized at so-and-so church when you were 5 or 15 or 50. That doesn't matter. Someone else's testimony about your faith does not count. What counts is that you know that Christ is your Savior. You are surrendered to Him day by day as your Lord and Master. And the evidence of your life of that is that you possess the fruits of the Spirit. That's the evidence. Because the transformative work of Christ in us is so powerful that true, good, righteous, holy, transformed trees will bear good fruit. It's spiritual nature. Doesn't mean that we don't sin. But notice the words that Paul uses in Galatians 5. Walking is living. Day by day. It's lifestyle. So if you live according to these fruits of the Spirit, then you have evidence that Christ has saved you. That you're a loving person. That you are uh, finding joy in Christ. That you understand the peace of Christ. That you have patience like Christ and kindness and so on and so forth. But Paul gives a wonderful and not exhaustive list of all the sinful things that we can have that possess our life. Again, if the the words communicated in verse 19 through 21, if they describe your life, not describe your Monday, describe your life, any of those words... Anything that the Bible teaches that is is sin and dishonorable to God. If you are a lifestyle disobedient child, that you live day by day shunning and rebelling against what your parents have taught you and what they've told you to do, the Bible says that you are condemned to the judgment of God. Because it's sin. But the fruits of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit is the evidence that we need, friend. Simon had no such evidence. So much so that when he offers Peter money for this power, 
Peter gives him our fourth observation. He gives us the fourth observation, which is spiritual verification. What we see in this last point is that false conversions are best identified from outside sources. Because, folks, if we're honest, we don't always see our own blindness. I know that sounds silly because a blind man understands his blindness. But the church here is an example as the Lord sends Peter and John to experience for themselves this pinnacle moment of history in the church where the Holy Spirit is given. And yet they also, their arrival on the scene remind us that spiritual verification of someone's faith is necessary for our daily lives as Christians. And it's not always an internal verification or identification. It's best from someone else. And Peter and John come upon the scene, and Peter particularly rebukes Simon in such a way to show us. Peter doesn't say, Now, Simon, you're confused. Look at the words that Simon or Paul, Peter uses, excuse me, to verify for Simon his lostness. You cannot have clearer words. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot. Folks, part and lot are inheritance words. To have a part of the inheritance or a lot in the inheritance is Old Testament language for the the tribes of Israel that had the inheritance of the promised land. Part and lot are inheritance words. He's saying, you don't have a part of the inheritance. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God or before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Now if Peter discerned that Simon had truly believed that his baptism was legitimate, then he would not be saying these things led by the Spirit. But instead, in every way, Peter is telling Simon his salvation was not genuine. And so we come to this understanding then that in false conversion, spiritual verification is necessary. It teaches us that as we evaluate the lives, our own spiritual lives and the lives of other people, we need to stop lying to ourselves and other people when spiritual matters are at stake. God has put before us opportunities to be spiritual figures in the lives of people that we walk alongside. And we should not push against or be fearful of spiritual assessment. Because these spiritual figures, us included, play a major part in our own sanctification. And not, I'm not talking about just leaders of the church. I'm talking about all of us playing a part, knowing and understanding what the Bible teaches about true salvation and being willing to play a part in the assessment of others. Let's look at three ways that we can play a part. The first one would be healthy assessment. The Bible speaks of the need of a spiritual evaluation. First, 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Number one, we have to examine ourselves. We have to be willing to put our own spiritual condition on the line to say, do I truly believe in Christ? Do I truly have faith in Him? But in the same way, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible tells us, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. So what's this teach us? 
that spiritual verification includes not only our own spiritual examination, but that we play a part in the examination of other people or the assessment of other people. And it's our role in love and gentleness to do such a thing. To play a part in that, to help people uh, see the gospel, understand the gospel. Whether they've fallen into sin and should be restored, or they've never trusted in Christ and they need to know the truth of Jesus. As leaders, we are very careful in the spiritual assessment of those who come forward. Last, uh, was it three weeks ago, Tristan, you were baptized? Four weeks ago? The week before Tristan was baptized, I put a call out to the church and said, if you are unsure about your salvation and the, 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 the obedience of baptism to follow your salvation, if you're an adult in here and you're unsure that you truly were faithful to be baptized after you were converted, I said, come to me, talk to me or the elders, and let's have a conversation about the importance of how your baptism should follow true conversion. Do you know that, that, that the elders in, in unison, we had three different conversations with adults wanting to be faithful to baptism. Now, my response to them with the conversations that I had, and I didn't have all three, was this. Well, let's sit down and let's have a conversation about what you believe about Christ. It wasn't, hey, the water's going to be fresh next week. Let's rush this along so we can get you in. It's going to be a great Instagram post. That's not what it was about. Instead, it's about healthy, patient verification of people understanding the gospel and being saved. So there's healthy assessment. There's also healthy restoration. Again, Galatians 6.1, playing a part as spiritual leaders Helping other people, brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you serve as leaders in the church or whether you just follow Christ, playing a part in the verification and the overall sanctification of our brothers and sisters in Christ. For Peter and John, they came providentially at the right moment to reveal to Simon his sin and his lack of understanding of the gospel. And guess what? We don't have the story of Simon after this. We have no idea how Simon's story concludes. But let me encourage you to read another story in the book of Acts about Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos. Apollos was a believer that I think had evidence of faith in Christ, but was confused about a lot of different doctrinal things. And Aquila and Priscilla come alongside him, and what do they do? They help him gently restore Apollos to understand the true things about uh, what the Bible teaches, particularly about baptism and so forth. And the Bible tells us that in Apollos' life, he continues on with Paul doing great work in the church of Corinth. And so we see this beautiful picture of, of, of a spiritual restoration and, and, and growth in the life of one believer because of the help and the benefit of another believer of Christ. So we can call that disciple-making, we can call that spiritual restoration, uh, sanctification, whatever words you want to use. The point is, is that church, we play a part in understanding these things and helping other people walk toward the gospel or live day by day in the Spirit, believing the gospel. So those four things are four observations about Simon the Magician that I believe personify false conversion. And as I said before, church, we are called to do what is necessary to make sure that people that claim to know Jesus truly understand Him. As I conclude, I just want to share a story with you. This is not my story, but a friend of mine who's a local pastor um, had a conversation one day with a local church planner that had come to the area. And this pastor friend of mine um, just, I don't know, was led by the Spirit to, uh, in his conversation with this young church planner, say, could you just humor me for a moment and tell me, what is the gospel? 
And my friend, this pastor, told me that in the next five to ten minutes, this young church planner stumbled through communicating what the gospel was to another pastor. He said the guy could not even explain the true gospel. And here he was being supported by a local group of churches to come and plant a church in this area. Now what kind of product and fruit is going to come from a ministry like that? If you don't know the gospel and you can't communicate the gospel, then what are the what's the what's the downline of that ministry? Other people that don't understand the gospel that are blinded by unbelief and are false converts in the church. And church, I don't want to be that way. I want us to be clear, even if I have to stand up here every Sunday and preach the exact same sermon. That's what I'll do. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that your gospel is clear. It's not muddy. It's not, um, Lord, it's not difficult to understand. And yet, Father, we know that, that there is, is a great danger among us to misinterpret, to misunderstand what clearly leads to true salvation in Christ. And so, Father, I, I just pray, God, with all the power of heaven and earth, that you would remove the blindness from unbelieving hearts and minds. People that we care about and love, God, that, that you would help them understand Jesus loves them. Jesus his sacrifice for sin is, is sufficient to cover all their scars and all their weaknesses and all their sin. And that, Father, they would believe and trust in you. That they would know that, that, um, that, their grace, that Christ's grace is sufficient for them. And so, Father, we, we know that only you can do that by your power and your might. And whether that's people that are here today or watching online, God, we know that um, Lord, your, your word does not return void, that it will do its work, that it is good. And God, help us to be faithful as believers, to remember the gospel that has saved us. As Paul told Timothy, Lord, to remember and guard the good deposit that's been given to us. Help us, Father, to be faithful in our participation in the, the salvation efforts of others. Whether we are sharing the gospel whether we are helping people see if they are truly saved. And Father, that we will be truthful with those who are not. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.